Well, good morning, uh, New City Church. My name is Charlie Blair, and I'd like to give you my personal welcome here. Uh, as Jake has already done for our first and uh, our second time guest, if I haven't met you before, I'd certainly like to delight in, in meeting you. So if you get a chance, uh, and you're not afraid of me by the time service is over, uh, introduce yourself to me and uh, let me get to know your name. It's exciting to get to fill in for uh, the big shoes of Matt when he's gone today. So I... Uh, Beg your patience and your tolerance during this next uh, hour and a half, <laughs> or so it may seem, right? We'll try to make the, the time uh, go quickly. Today we're going to, and we can do that because we're not going to cover much. We're only going to cover the first 15 chapters of Acts today. Uh, so we, at least we have a finite goal, right? I think we can do that. So let, let's, let's buckle in and, and do this thing together. Uh, First of all, let's, let's open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and let's start working our way through this. Uh, as we open the book of Acts, what we're doing is continuing the story that we've been on uh, the last few weeks. Because the last few weeks, we've, we've gone through uh, the week before the crucifixion, uh, the death, the burial, the resurrection uh, last week of Jesus. And we've been really investigating that cross event and what it means to have uh, that Jesus came and died for our sins. And today, uh, we're going to continue that story. There is a next to that story. In fact, as we get to the book of Acts, we're going to discover three things. One is there's a, a continuity to the story. The Genesis and Revelation have something to do with the book of Acts. I don't know if you ever thought of that or not, but Acts is not a, a, a book that they just all of a sudden throw, oh, we need another New Testament book. It's the connection between what has happened to what will happen, and we'll, we'll see that. There's also a pattern to the story. Not only is there a pattern to the, to the big story, the patterns since Genesis 3.15, when the prophecy that Jesus would bruise Satan's head, uh, would crush Satan's head, there's a pattern to how the story of the church plays out in New Testament time and since then. And if you'd like uh, to understand how to reach the world, this is your example for that. And there's also much, much more to the story. In fact, there's two parts to the big story. We've been talking about the story, uh, which is the chronological compressed narrative uh, of the Bible without all the fill-in of the uh, uh, thou shalt, or the, the begets, so-and-so begets. Yeah, I stay up late night reading those, don't you? In fact, I fell asleep late last night. I was going through the, the list of uh, of uh, genealogies, and I just really delight in those. So I'm sure that we'll we'll talk about those afterwards, right? We, we'll have a lot to share in those areas. But those lists make a difference if we understand what the story is. And uh, I, I can tell you quickly that the story is all about how we got Jesus. But that's not the whole story. There's much, much more to that story. And that's the second part. The first story, first part of the story from Genesis to, through, uh, to the beginning of the book of Acts is a story of, of a creation to the cross. But Acts will pick up that story and will take us from the resurrection to the return. And sometimes we forget about that part of the story. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you thought one thing and it really was quite another? You know, you find out that your perception of reality is not quite the way reality is. Let me tell you a story back when I was in fifth grade. 
And I can recall that far back. I know it, it looks like a long, to you that's a long time ago. To me, it's just like, you know, 55 years ago or so. <laughs> we were on a field trip in St. Louis. And the field trip was about over. And we're all getting on the bus, loading to go back to school. And it had been a great field trip. All the kids had been given a little extra money to buy a hot dog or a Hershey's candy bar or some sort of a treat as we got on the bus. We were a poor family, and my parents didn't have that, and I was sans the hot dog, sans the, the uh, candy bar. But I was kind of on the bus, kind of musing, sitting there in the front. I was, I've always been a front row person, kind of imagining what it would be like if I had one of those hot dogs. About that time, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Krause, comes up into view, breaks into my musings, utters a few words, and hands me a hot dog. Says, here, Charlie. Utters a few more words and walks off the bus. That's when I began to believe in prayer. (laughs) My prayer was answered. The hot dog was soon gone. In just moments, Mrs. Krause returned. She looked me in the eye and says, Charlie, where's my hot dog? And do you ever have those times when all of a sudden you can replay a conversation for the first time that you've already heard before and listen to it this time? And I remember I could hear, here, Charles, I have to do something. Would you hold this until I return? I'll be right back. All I heard was, here's a hot dog, Charles. I was unprepared for Mrs. Krause's return. Now, she was graceful about it, not wise. She did that again later on with a Hershey bar. I don't know why she ever ever thought she could trust me. I enjoyed it, too. But that's twice I was unprepared for her return. But you see, that's the situation we get into in the book of Acts. You see, the, the real controversy in the book of Acts, and even in the Gospels, It's not just about who Jesus was, it's about what he was going to do. That was his recognizable trait, so to speak. Acts is the practical outworking of the resurrection. Everything the disciples do in Acts is in complete harmony with what was written in our Old Testament. That's this part, the thick part. You may not have realized that, or you may not have ever even read that part. But it's this part that explains this part. And that's very, very important. Acts shares the impact continuing from the Gospels at the moment of the realization that this spoke about Christ. That all the events foretold, that all those crucifixion events were this. That they came to pass in Christ. The aha moment that this Old Testament was this Christ thing. So let's look at Acts chapter 1. Pick this up here. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So right off, we find out that there's another book somewhere, right? That's kind of curious. So let's look to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. There we read, 
many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's that connection to the Old Testament, right? Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, those who had seen the things of Jesus and the servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So there we see this Theophilus guy gets. What we're learning is that two things. First of all, we learned that God is faithful and you can trust him, right? Because he's showing in both of these accounts that he's writing down things that can be learned from Scripture and from eyewitnesses. But he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. So the former book, what was the former book written? It was the Gospel of Luke, right? See, when this book was first met the scene 30 years or so after um, the events happened here in Acts, the Gospel of Luke and this work of Acts were one book. They were two scrolls, but they were one book. They weren't separated by the Gospel of John like they are in our Bibles. And so it was called Luke-Acts. See, back then you wrote books on scrolls rather than printed them in books like that. They didn't just go over the copy machine, you know, hit print and go. They had to go over to the sheep, rip off a piece of hide, cure it, and then write the book. And, you know, sheep are a definite length, Right? Even if you sew a few of them together, there's a practical length by which you can roll up and carry around and read. So books had a practical length. And whether you know it or not, many of the books of our Bible, the length of them is determined primarily by how much of this you could put onto a scroll. So naturally, Luke writes one scroll and he writes another scroll, but he continues it and that's what he's trying to say here. The first scroll says all that Jesus began to do, and the second scroll is going to tell us what next. And it says, after this, verse 3 says, and his, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over uh, a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Here's my question to you. What proof does someone need at this point? What are the convincing proofs that were required? I mean, is it just that he was undead? That's certainly an important truth, right? You need proof of that. What's the proof of him being undead? It's the healed wounds in his hand, right? He had the eyewitnesses. It's the the wounds, healed wounds in his side, uh, the healed wounds in his feet. But what does an undead person prove? Nothing except that the person is undead. The many convincing proofs that they were providing here were that that undead person conforms to the promise of the undead person in all this. That he meets not only the test of being undead, but he meets the test item by item, point by point of every promise made about that dead person. Let's look at that a little further. Uh, in, uh, let's go back, let's take a flashback into last week's lesson. Remember last week Matt taught us about 
the road to Emmaus. He took us on the Emmaus journey, right? In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, he said, O foolish men, and you slow of heart uh, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. See, that was the touch point, was what the prophets had told. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now, that's an interesting statement, what his glory is, and that'll be relevant here in a couple of minutes, hopefully. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I used to say, well, I wish Jesus had written down that apologetic sermon. That would have really been neat to be able to, because then I could, when I'm in a conversation with somebody, all I have to do is pull out Jesus' process, go through that, and I get the results that Jesus got. Wouldn't you love to have Jesus' sermon on that day? You've got it. It's called the Old Testament. That's why it took seven miles to deliver. He didn't give a quick apologetic soundbite. He gave them the proof starting at Genesis and worked his way on through to Malachi that he was the one that all that was about. He was a scarlet thread woven through the fabric of the Old Testament. So things concerning himself these are the thing, These address the problems of the perceptions, the misperceptions that perhaps the Jews and we all have. This, who is Jesus, and does Jesus conform to our concept of Him? So we have a problem. We all have some kind of a concept about Jesus. Now, what happens when Jesus doesn't look like the Jesus that we picture or imagine? Just like the Jews of Jesus' time. See, the crucifixion was an attempt to erase the evidence of the disagreement with their picture of who Jesus should be. Sometimes we do that. We want to erase the evidence. We can either demand that Jesus conform to our image of him and deny the, the Jesus that we read here, or we can change our image to match the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. Which do you think is the right choice? I'm going with B. If there's any doubt, I, I lay aside, I've, I've, I've often had to lay aside my image of Jesus to take on the Bible's image of Jesus. And that was the primary issue. But see what happens with all, all the scriptures here, right? Let's look at what's going on there. It says, there's three parts of scripture. He says, it started with Moses, right? Moses was not the man Moses. It was the writings of Moses. The writings of Moses are the first five books of our Bible. We call them the the Pentateuch, which means five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when he says, starting with Moses, he meant those five books revealed a lot about him. When you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, do you see Christ? Maybe now you will. Instead of looking at the genealogies, maybe you'll look at the Christ revealed. But beginning in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the one who would crush Satan's head is given. And turns out, we find in John 1, that it's the one who was in the beginning with the Word, who the Word was with God, the Word was God, and by whom all things were created. The second thing says that Moses and the prophets, he wasn't being specific, he was being about all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, all those were the major prophets that revealed something about Jesus and Israel's relationship to Jesus. 
this Jesus, this Messiah who would come and how it would impact Israel. Then all the scripture, that's another writing. Today we would call that the writings. That's another word for the writings. So you put those together. The Moses, the prophets, and all the writings. Add those together, that counts up the 66 books we call the Old Testament. You see, and sometimes we fly over that and we think that he had some kind of a neat sermon. He did. He wrote it, beginning in Genesis. And that's the Jewish way of saying all of Scripture. The next thing we run across is that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, that's part of the pattern, and spoke about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom was central, wasn't it? But what about this 40 days? That's a curious thing. He tells them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for 40 days. Uh, but there's, I think there's a pattern going on here. Something's going to happen soon in Jerusalem. There's three times a year when every Jewish male had to be in Jerusalem. The first was for the Feast of First Fruits. The second was for the Feast of Pentecost. And the third was for the Feast of Sukkot. That's the third, the fourth, and the fifth of the seven of God's feasts. Did you know God had a calendar? It's not one of these pretty fluffy things you buy online. But God has a way of telling time. And everything he's ever done, everything he will do is written on that calendar. And that calendar starts in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, This is the first of your months. I don't know if you know it or not, but Jesus did everything he did right on God's calendar. Jesus was crucified on Passover. That's the first event on God's calendar. He was laid in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was the one without, in whom there was no leaven. He was raised on the Feast of First Fruits, the First Fruits offering from the dead, we're told. So when, if you look through Luke's eyes here as he writes the gospel of the book of Luke Acts, he's looking at the pattern of God, and when he says, wait here for 40 days, what he's saying, the tension's building, you can hear that there's a crescendo of something very exciting getting ready to happen on God's calendar. Because at this point, from the Feast of First Fruits, about, Fifty days later is the Feast of Pentecost. So ten days after that forty days is what Jesus is preparing them to, to wait for, to be in position for. So they're not going back trying to figure out what to do in the upper room. They're going back to the upper room praying into what they've been told to do, anticipating this next event on the day of Pentecost. There's much, much more to this story. It's not finished. He says... Uh, in fact, what we find out is Jesus was crucified. I told you Jesus was crucified on Passover, placed in the tomb during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and raised again on the Feast of uh, First Fruits. The point I want to make to you there is that God keeps his appointments. And we have many appointments with God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Men of Galilee, this is when they've gone to the mountain with Jesus. This is on day 40. And the men are standing there looking into the sky, lost and bewildered one more time because this Jesus that they thought they had figured out has left them again. 
Just about the time they had to figure that happened to crucifixion now again. But there's 10 days to Pentecost. How are we going to do Pentecost without Jesus? They get tapped on the shoulder. Two angels. What are you guys doing? Don't you know, and they should know from this, that he's coming back the same way he left? Part two. Jesus is coming back. So now they know, after hearing Jesus' words, they rush back to Jerusalem, to the city, and begin preparing because now they know it's only 10 days till next. And for them, the tumblers are starting to fall in place. It started to make some sense. For us, we're not as familiar, so we don't see these things. See, what was a stumbling block for the Jews of that day was that Jesus came as a suffering servant. They had no need for anybody who would come and suffer for them. They had a need for a strong Davidic king who would come and take them out from under Roman bondage. So they rejected the suffering Messiah. And they tried to get rid of the evidence by the cross and the tomb. But this suffering Messiah met all the requirements and he was raised from the dead. And there's another step. It's only later he'll come back as the conquering king. And that's what we all sometimes struggle with. We love this touchy-feely Jesus that we can sing love songs to, and it's appropriate that we do. But there's a Jesus coming back, and he's not going to have a smiley face on. He's going to be riding a white horse, and his garments are going to be stained with blood, and he's going to be asking us what we did since that time, with what he's done for us. That's part two. Jesus, part two. That's from the resurrection to the return. See, Jesus came first as a suffering servant and would only later come back as the conquering king. That's what they didn't understand, and that's what we often forget. Remember the Pentecost problem? They didn't understand Jesus had the first and the second appearance. In Acts 2.36, we find Peter in this first sermon, the tongues of fire have set their speaking languages, the wind is blowing, odd things are happening, the earth is trembling, and every nation under earth is represented by the Jews there. And this tells us something about the intent of the gospel has always been for all the nations of the earth. But Peter says these words to the crowd after, at the end of his sermon. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Both. So we, we think of that as one term, but that's two terms. Lord and Christ. Christ was how he came. He came as the Messiah, the suffering servant. But that Lord part is what we often struggle with. And we sometimes talk about Jesus, Lord, Lord and, and Christ both, and we, that means he gets to tell us what to do. But it's more than just he gets to tell us what to do. He's coming back to make sure we've done it. That's the Lord that they rejected. That's the Lord that they wanted, because when he comes back, they saw him coming back on feast number seven, which is the feast of Sukkot, and that we call that the millennial reign. And they know when he comes back, everything's going to be put on order and he'll be ruling with a, an iron scepter at that point. That's the Jesus we want to be ready for. The, 
the crucifixion and the resurrection assures us that he's coming back. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if, I, if that's not so, I would have told you. But if I go, guess what? I'm coming back. Jesus is coming back. So there's two stages. There's both Lord or the King and Messiah. The King is ruler and the Messiah, or, or the King is ruler and the Messiah as Savior. In Acts two thirty seven, we read this. He says, "When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said, men, brothers, what do we do? Because many people in this mob were the ones who had crucified him. And finally, the aha goes off." that they made the wrong choice and they conformed to their perception rather than conform their perception to this promise. What shall we do? So they had heard what God was saying to them and they wanted to know what to do about it. Does that sound familiar? That's our two favorite New City questions, right? What's God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? That's our Kairos language. That's the two important things that inform how we do anything we do here. If God hasn't said it, why would we do it? If God says it, why wouldn't we do it? A word from God implies a response, an action on our part. Let's continue on in the sermon. In Peter's second sermon in chapter 3 of Acts, verses 17 through 21, it says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. That's why Jesus said, I've Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying his Christ would suffer. In other words, he conformed to the pattern of his word, of his promises. Repent. Turn to God. See, repentance isn't feeling bad about your past life. It's not turning away from your past life. It's turning to God. With God in your full view, you've got nothing You've got no room for anything else. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that the times of refreshing, this times of refreshing is another way of saying that that seventh festival, that return, that millennial reign can happen. You say, Charlie, are you sure about that? That the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ. See, he's coming again. Who has been appointed. That's that calendar thing. God wrote these appointments on his calendar that has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's the millennial kingdom as he promised long ago through his prophets. Jesus is coming back. The meaning of times of refreshment is that seventh festival. Working through, from, through Palm Sunday, what, two weeks ago? We find something unusual on Palm Sunday. As Jesus came in, he was riding on a donkey. That was very symbolic. Next time he rides on a horse. Donkey means peace. Horse means war. But all the people see him, and they sing the hosannas, and they wave the palm branches, and they lay them down, they lay their coats down. They're celebrating the wrong festival. That's not Pentecost or a Passover. They're celebrating Sukkot. Because they saw their Messiah, they skipped the next three feasts and went straight to Sukkot. They understood that correctly, Jesus was the Lord of Sukkot, the Lord of the thousand-year reign. But they had their calendars wrong. They didn't understand the suffering servant, Jesus, had to come first. So they crucified the evidence. 
Repentance is tied to the next time we'll see Jesus. In Acts 3.18 it says, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. He's trying to make that point. It's, for us, that, that often, it, that point isn't made because we don't have the background in the Old Testament we should, in the prophets and Moses and the writings. He uses Moses as the example, continuing in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. This is a story he tells and Stephen tells and Paul tells over and over again. For Moses said, and this is in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet just like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. This is not an optional story, is it? Not in Jesus' eyes. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, Samuel was the first prophet. As many as have spoken have foretold these days. And you are the heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, notice that covenant that ties directly to Abraham. The first covenant was made with Abraham. It says to Abraham, he said, through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first. That's the first visit to you. He's telling about Jesus to these people by turning each of you from your wicked ways. See, Jesus was to fulfill Moses and Abraham and everything else in the Old Testament. God promised him, Jesus, He was brought through and to Israel. And now you and I, we are invited into this story, Israel's story. The first visit was to prepare us for the second. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, because there's a neat pattern here as well. See how this story is supposed to progress in Acts. In fact, this is the outline for the book of Acts. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates of the Father set. In other words, every moment is rushing toward the return of Jesus by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem and into all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is exactly how the story progresses through Acts. The pattern is walked out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 1, we find them waiting for the Spirit to move. In chapter 2 through 8, we see the struggle as Israel is brought to uh, faith in Messiah. And they are model, these struggles are the model for our struggles. Chapter 7, we see Saul, Saul, the uh, prolific author of the New Testament, now giving assent to the murder of the first martyr. In chapter 8, we see the gospel moving from Jerusalem out of Judea into Samaria, the half-breeds of Israel, where God's beginning to restore Israel. In chapter 9, Paul has a personal encounter with Jesus that changes his life entirely, and he goes from persecutor to the uh, a proponent of the gospel. In chapter 10, Peter's confronted, and his Jewishness is confronted, and finally he is sent to the Gentile 
Cornelius. In chapter 13, Paul is sent off as the apostle to the Gentiles. We're the Gentiles, by the way. Those who weren't familiar with the early part of the story, necessarily. And Paul teaches them the God story. In chapter 14, we finally find a presentation to a Gentile group that don't know anything about the story. And it's a little different. He deal, begins to deal sequentially with those who far, are far off. It's interesting. The resurrection is the proof of the fulfillment of the first and the proof that the second will soon follow. Let that soak in. The resurrection is Christ's guarantee that he's coming again, isn't it? So how do folks in Acts respond to this message? I see six ways they respond. And these are ways that we need to consider. I need you to identify where you are in this response in your life to Christ. All of us are somewhere in this journey. The six commonalities. First, we hear. You have to hear the gospel. We have to believe what we've heard. And we believe based on the promises. We repent. That means we turn to God, right? That we heard that. We are to be baptized. We had baptism in the first service. We had dedication in this service. We'll have baptism again uh, next week and in the, in the third service today. And we have to receive the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of, of God through baptism. Uh, those two can be switched around in order. We see the, both orders, them in either order in, in, in the book of Acts. Then we have to walk it out. And that means live a life that anticipates the return. We're all somewhere in that list. What does the next step of your story with Jesus look like? What do you need to do to step into the bigger story? See, here's the, here's the crux. The events that we're reading here in the book of Acts are now 2,000 years in the rearview mirror of history. Does that tell you that Jesus is coming soon? It does me. Don't be with Jesus like I was with Mrs. Krause, unprepared for her return. I guarantee you, the consequences are much more severe. So what do you need to do to be prepared? You've got two choices. You can follow this list and respond to Jesus so that when he returns, then he'll invite you into the air to get in file behind him and return with him to rule and to reign to all the things he restores. I go with option one. Option two is you resist and rebel. You remain here, but you will bow the knee and your tongue will confess even if through gritted teeth. Jesus is Lord. See, that's the story. That's your story. That's my story. And it's all wrapped up in God's story.